You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Hey, as they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. We're back on The Pipeline Show. We close out this week's episode uh, looking ahead to the national championship game for college hockey as uh, two thrillers went on Thursday. I thought both games were really entertaining, and part of that might be because of the uh, broadcast. Uh, south of the border was uh, top class, and uh, as usual, Dave Starman in between periods uh, knocking it out of the park, and he's my guest once again. Uh, Dave, terrific job yesterday. Looking forward to Saturday as well. Uh, what what was your takeaway? Let's start with the uh, the first game between the Friars and the Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs. What, what are you going to remember from that game? Uh, it was funny because it was, it was one of those games that really needed a cup of coffee early. You know, it just it didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot of push to it as each team was feeling the other one out, and they're teams that are built somewhat similar. So they're you know, it, was, it was almost like it's almost like looking in the mirror at times as, yeah. as each team stared across the way. But, you know, I thought that as the game went on, two things emerged. Number one is you saw the passion, the intensity, and the energy that Providence College brings to every game they play. And, and that's certainly a reflection of their head coach, Nate Lehman, and, and the style that he has gotten his group to play. But on the other side of it, you really saw the stick and culture and veteran savvy and poise of Minnesota Duluth, and they're just, they're never in a game they don't feel comfortable in. I think it's a really unique quality about this group, and a lot of it has to do with, with their head coach, who seems to get calmer and more relaxed the bigger the games get. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, they're now chasing their third title in nine years and, and playing in their third straight national title games. I mean, this is a group that knows how to handle pressure. It's a group that knows how to play uh, from behind if they have to. They know how to chase the game. They know how to not spend too much nervous energy on the things that have kind of out of their realm. And uh, once again, Hunter Shepard proved that he is, you know, in the upper echelon of goaltenders in, in the NCAA. I thought the third period, he made four or five saves that were game savers. And as usual, UMD's fourth line proved to be the line that could determine the game. Roth, Axel, and centered by Jade Miller. Uh, that line has been lights out since the beginning of the year. I think it's the best fourth line in the NCAA. And each and every game, that line seems to factor in and do really good things. Felt like, uh, for me, almost like a heavyweight fight where two two juggernauts are just kind of trying to, as you described, uh, trying to feel each other out for a while, and then you start getting the bigger blows, and eventually UMD wins that game. And you contrast that with uh, the second game with Denver and UMass, that was like a featherweight fight where it was just speed, speed, speed. And guys, I mean, that was really entertaining hockey game. Goes to overtime. Obviously, that's going to be a thriller, uh, no matter what level you're playing at. Um, what do you think of that game? And, and obviously, there was a lot of controversy with the the three players tossed out, and the the one who wasn't, who probably should have been. Uh, what do you think of the UMass Denver game? It was it was a really unique game. I thought for bits and pieces of it. You, know, you have to, sorry, Denver gets to lead one nothing early on the power play and. You know, their power play not been connecting very well. So, I mean, you know, they get that going for them, and, and they're starting to feel good. I thought the pace off the hop was was pretty good. And then Denver really gets into penalty trouble, and and the UMass power play goes to work. And you saw the three goals they scored. I didn't think that, that the goaltender Larson looked great on the third one. It looked, he looked terrible on the second one. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've kind of walked this mile where you're in a big game and, and – what do you do with a goalie that seems to be struggling? Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was I would have pulled him. And I give David Carr a lot of credit for, he obviously knows his team better than I do, but he, I, I give him a lot of credit for, for leaving Larson in and letting him fight his way through it. And I thought from you know the time he gave up that third goal on, he was as good as he'd been through the parts of the season where he was terrific. And 
he gave him a chance to win. And Denver in the third period, it's funny, you know, a lot of we're, we're sitting on the set, everybody's trying to take stuff off because we're not doing a post game show. So we're starting to get pick their earpieces out and take their microphones off and that kind of thing. And I'm looking around the booth and my boys was watched Denver all year. I've seen this movie. And so they're they're not going quietly. I wouldn't start backing up just yet. You know, then they get the two goals and and, and send it in overtime. I, I thought Denver played as advertised. I thought that UMass played it as, as advertised. They they both came at you with high speed, high skill, active defense scores, goaltending good. I, I I think that in in parts of this game, Greg Carville would look at his goalie and say there are two goals he'd like back. I think David Carl would look at his goalie and say he probably won all three back. But but in the end, uh, Denver's youth made a big push in the third period. That's going to be part of their future. And UMass's defensive core made a ton happen, I thought, as the game continued to move. Yeah, Cole Gutman, terrific performance from him. The freshman gets three points in that game. Uh, he was terrific and uh, clutch in that third period. Uh, boy, I was so impressed with the speed of the, the Minutemen and how quickly they can move the puck, not just the skating, but, boy, they fire the puck when they're passing to each other and it's tape to tape. Uh, I was really impressed with their puck movement. It's you know, it's funny. Early on in the game, it looked like they were trying to figure things out. You know, then they got on that first power play, and all of a sudden they got some time and space to play with because Denver's a pretty good team at eliminating that. They got some time and space to play with, and they got their hands moving, and all of a sudden they started connecting four or five passes at a clip, and they started getting their feet going a little bit. Uh, boy, did their onions start to bloom, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and it, it just it just started to go, and, and that's when I thought that they really hit their comfort zone. And, you know, UMass is one of those teams that they can play east-west, and they can do it well, and they've got some puck possession guys, and, and they've got some players with some high skill level that can make some things happen when they control the puck, but I, I thought as as the game went through the second period, they were they were continuing to move it. And I thought as the third period went on, their possession time went down. Denver, obviously, with a little more urgency to their game, controlled a bit more of the pace of the game. But the, the name of that game last night, for a good chunk of it, was skill. And I thought it was a really good representation of where we've taken the game of hockey in terms of the pace that it can be played at, the skill that it can be played at, and the ability of players to make plays in small areas. Dave, I was watching the game yesterday uh, with my uh, father-in-law, and with, with all the guys getting kicked out of the game, he was getting a little frustrated. He didn't think they were deserving, and I you know at a lot at other levels those might have not been game misconducts, but at the collegiate level, and you described it really well. Any contact to the head means you're in, in trouble. You agreed with all three of the ones that uh, that were called. Here's here's a good one because I tweeted last night when I saw a lot of the reaction going on. I'm like, hey, listen, here's here's the deal. You can hate the rule. And there are a lot of people who do. But to the officials' credit, on all three calls, they got it right. Yeah. And I don't think it was a really well-officiated game. I was not a not a huge fan of the way the game got called. But you know what? That happens. It's subjective. And and you know, but moving forward, if if you don't if you don't like the contact to the head rule and you want to go back and revisit it again, I, I think you can have some open dialogue. I am all for protecting the head. I do not think that a player who comes in and makes direct contact to the head. He, especially when it looks somewhat intentional, should be given a slap on the wrist. This is, you know, I joke with people all the time. This is not your father's game anymore. This game has changed. This game has evolved. And headhunting is not a part of it. And I know a lot of the old-timers are like, well, too many players are skating with their head down. But you know what? That That's an issue that we have to work out in terms of teaching kids how to play a little bit more heads-up hockey. And, and you know, we as, a, we as a federation, Hockey Canada as a federation, we want to own that. That's one thing. But the bottom line is this. You cannot by any means condone any kind of direct contact to the head. And if it costs you five for the purpose of making sure we get it out of the game, then it's, I think it's something that's got to continue to get considered. 
Now, yeah, at one point you did mention that you thought they uh, were all deserved of uh, the game misconducts, and uh, the last one I think you said uh, maybe even a DQ. What was the difference? What's the difference between a disqualification and a game misconduct? Would it carry a one-game suspension? Yeah, if you get DQ'd, you're automatically out for the next game. If it's yeah. a game misconduct, you're out for that game. But if you get three game misconducts, you serve a one-game suspension. And to me, the difference in the determination is the violence of the act. And you know, there are times where you know you can lower your shoulder. You don't think you're going to go shoulder to shoulder, and sometimes you get the head directly because the player you're going to hit, is, you know, is trying to duck around you, or you're six four and the player's five nine. I mean, these. But there's also the concept of the, the the player that's delivering the hit, it is their responsibility to make sure that they do not hit the defenseless player. And sometimes that can happen so quickly. So so let's say, you know, you're five nine, I'm six foot and I lower my shoulder, try to get shoulder to shoulder, and I go shoulder to head. But you can clearly see that I was just trying to take you off the puck. You want to call a five there, no game misconduct, that's fine. If you think that there was a follow through to increase the violence of the hit, you want to throw the game misconduct in there? Okay, that's that barometer. And then if you do something that is really egregious, I honestly have no issue with it becoming a DQ. Hmm. We'll get on to the final game here in a second. I want to ask about the Bobby Trevino elbow at the end, though, that didn't get called at all. And uh, I don't know if that's something that at the collegiate level can be reviewed or anything. David Carl certainly wanted an explanation on the Denver bench. All right, so I'm a little fuzzy on top to bottom because I've heard it a couple of different ways. So I don't, I don't want to lead your audience into – you know, down the wrong path. But sure. what I do know is very recently we did a game between St. Cloud State and Minnesota Duluth at St. Cloud, and there was a collision in the corner just before the end of the third period, and there was no call made on the original hit. But as soon as it – and then the buzzer sounded to send the game into overtime, and the video guy for St. Cloud, T.J. Ginger, who had played at Notre Dame, called out to the bench and he said, hey, I'll watch this thing on video. You, you might want to challenge this. You might want to have to take a look at this. Because there was definitely contact at here. That should probably be a major. And after the review, the referees came out of the box. It was the first whistle after the incident had happened. The officials came out of the box and said, yeah, you know what? This is a five-minute and a game is conduct. And, and Minnesota Duluth wound up sc- – uh, no, St. Cloud State wound up scoring on the power play and won the game in overtime. And so I was thinking last night, same kind of thing. Now, there's a couple of stories going back and forth that they asked David Carl if he used his timeout. He said no. He was going to get another timeout once overtime started anyway. So I, I don't I don't exactly know the true story. I've heard a couple of different versions from a couple of different players. I mean, from a couple of different sources. I'm not big into hearsay. So I'm, I'm hoping that the actual explanation comes out along with everything that has come out today. I mean, I thought it was a, a legitimate call if they had made the major there. I mean, I no. thought that would, have, that would have warranted it. But I'm trying to get a little bit more squared away on what the exact protocol was at that point in the game regarding uh, whether it was a review, timeout needed, and whether or not the officials had the opportunity to take a look at it before anybody challenged it. Fair enough. Uh, Dave Starman, uh, analyst extraordinaire with ESPN, CBS Sports as well. Uh, you can watch the uh, Frozen Four, the finale, the national championship game on uh, Saturday, tomorrow. That's uh, south of the border on ESPN. And which which channel, which ESPN channel is it on, Dave? <laughs> I think it is ESPN2 down here and TSN2 up there. Yes, okay. Well, let's set up the uh, the big game, uh, UMass against Minnesota Duluth. Uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is that power play for UMass, so deadly. How key is it for Minnesota Duluth to just keep this game 5-on-5? Five five? Uh, here's the funny part about it. Until about a month ago, the best penalty-killing unit in the country to almost a historic pace was Minnesota Duluth. And then they did a hiccup in St. Cloud where the Huskies lit them up 
two games in a row, and then it struggled again the following weekend until it finally righted itself. And you know, I don't think it's got the edge that it had, but it's still pretty good. So, you know, I think it's a very intriguing matchup for the fans at home in terms of what to watch, and that would be the UMD penalty kill against the UMass power play. Those are two elite-level units that could go head-to-head and, I think, determine this game. If UMass doesn't score a power play goal, in the game against Minnesota Duluth, I think they're going to struggle. I, I, I'll be honest with you, because UMD has got that veteran poise. It's got that savvy. They know how to manage games. I really think if they don't do anything to beat themselves, they should be somewhat the favorite in this game. But on the other hand, if UMD does get into penalty trouble, and again, you're not playing with your conference referees. You're playing with guys that may be seeing you for the first time all season long. So whereas an NCHC crew or a Hockey East crew might know where you're pushing the envelope and where you're not, you know, a, a non-conference crew might not. So this is where each team's got to has got to really make sure they take care of their own discipline. And UMass is a faster team; they can wind up drawing UMD into some penalties with their speed. So I think the dynamic of this game, as you set up really well, the power play of UMass and the penalty kill of UMD. To me, the winner of that game within the game probably wins the game. Uh, I was uh, impressed with uh, Mario Ferraro yesterday uh, with uh, UMass, and I I saw the. Uh, one of the regional games that the uh, Minutemen played as well, and he was really good there. Um, I, I'm sure he gets overshadowed a lot because of uh, Kale McCarr, and uh, McCarr, obviously, I, he'd be my vote for the Hobie Baker uh, today. But uh, Ferraro was a really, really good player. And I, I'm not sure if it was you yesterday, uh, but uh, somebody made the point that uh, Greg Carvel actually said it on my show as well, that he's kind of the guy that makes it go uh, for that team. Even though McCarr gets all the highlights and, and the headlines, uh, Ferraro is the guy that, uh, he's the straw that stirs the drink. It's funny, he was a really good minus two yesterday, if, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. And the thing I like about Ferraro, he's a really, really good transitional defenseman. He's a big, thick kid who reads plays well, he gaps up really well. Like most of the teams in hockey, most of the teams in hockey are really good with their sticks. They good stick discipline, good stick positioning, a lot of poke checking, a lot of stick checking, whereas against the HC is a little bit more of, you know, if you want to go to the net, you're going to eat lumber type of thing. And, but I, I was really impressed with Ferraro all season long and how well he uses stick to defend, how well he kills plays, how well he gaps, how well he angles, and how quickly he can transition from picking a puck off the stick of an opposing player and turning the puck and getting himself going north pretty quick and joining. He's, I, I just think his hockey IQ is terrific, and I, and I think his ability to read the rush and gamble a little bit is, is a good thing. I, I wouldn't say he's a cowboy, but he's got a little Wild West mentality in him when it comes to taking a risk to, to shut down a play and get going the other way. He's a real good skater, too. And that, I mean, everybody, yep. it seems like if you're going to play for uh, Greg Carville, the first thing you got to be able to do is skate. It, it seems like everybody on that team has got wheels. If you're going to make the NCAA tournament, you got to have a team that can skate. That's really what it comes down to. It's very rare uh, that you don't. The, the game is so evolved. And you know, teams that kind of have the bigger, older, stronger, faster players are starting to make a little bit more hay than even 10 years ago where just the blue blood programs with the high-end guys were, were dominating. But the, the one thing you see in a lot of these programs, and I get to watch a lot of them practice, which I'm really fortunate, uh, the one thing you see is the emphasis on skill development and skating still at the NCAA level with, with a lot of these players because each one of these coaches know that if they want to move their players on, they've got to move on players that can skate. But the other thing is if they want to make the NCAA tournament try to win a national championship, uh, the key cog in their wheel is going to be guys that can move. Now, well, when you look at the Duluth Bulldogs and just uh, so much experience now on that team, I mean, if you're a junior uh, on the, in that program, you've been to this game three years in a row now. Uh, I mean, that experience is just invaluable. How key could that be uh, when we see these two teams lace them up tomorrow? 
Oh, you know the old the old expression, right? You can't buy experience, and UMD has got boatloads of it. And it starts from the top of their lineup, and a guy like Parker Mackay. And I thought his line was really, really good yesterday too. I mean, they had two lines going last night. Mackay's line was one, uh, the one with Richards in the middle, and then that fourth line with with Jade Miller in the middle. And and they were, I thought they did a a good chunk of the damage from a two hundred foot perspective. But you know, here's the thing: Minnesota Duluth to me is much more of a sum of its parts than than a lot of other teams I watch and people talk about their depth and they do have depth, but they don't, they don't have anything in their roster that other than maybe Perunovic that makes you stand up and say, you know, Whoa, this, this is big time, but they've got a lot of guys that are maybe on the a minus side of the ledger as opposed to the a plus side of the ledger. And, and they've got some really good B pluses too. And that to me is, is a huge part of their game. Mikey Anderson is as smart a player as there is. He's got an uncanny ability just to get pucks through from the blue line. Dylan Sandberg in the second half of the season, ever since the World Juniors, has really started to join the offensive rush much more and, and make more offensive forays down the left wing side where he can use that big body to drive the net and, and create some havoc. And, you know, a guy that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, you know, Mikey Anderson does, Maddie Anderson doesn't. Those two kids have, with Sandberg have been teammates, you know, since they were in diapers. And, you know, Maddie is a, another defenseman that can skate. Louis Rail's become a good defender who, who's got some mobility. Nick Wolf is, you know, just a big oak tree with arms that shuts things down and keeps people honest. So it's a, it's a real good defense core that, that can make a lot happen. And the experience of their back end to me is a huge reason why I look at them as a team that can repeat just because of the fact that they don't get rattled and they have to manage games. I know better than to ask you for a, predi- a prediction because I don't want to put you in an awkward situation. Uh, my pre-tournament bracket had Duluth and St. Cloud in the final with Duluth winning uh, first team, to win back to back since uh, what Denver in two thousand four two thousand five? That is correct. Yeah, Denver will four and oh five. And it's funny to think too because you could have a good St. Cloud. You might have a St. Cloud UMass matchup if, if St. Cloud had gotten through the bracket. And I was always thinking to myself that you know maybe, maybe that would have been fun to watch too. But mm-hmm. uh, like I think here's the thing. I, I would say to you this: to me, it is it comes down to I believe if UMass gets three or four power plays in this game, they can connect at least once. It will. It could potentially determine the game. All right, we'll watch for that. Uh, worth noting as well: Parker McKay and Kale McCarr, both uh, leading their respective teams in scoring, both from Alberta. Dave, I'm just going to leave you with that. Uh, the pride of Irma, Alberta, is Parker McKay. <laughs> yep, following in uh, Carson Susie's uh, footsteps as a an Irma Alberta <laughs> right. product as well. Dave, uh, really appreciate your time as always. Uh, fantastic job on the broadcast. Uh, really looking forward to the final tomorrow. Thanks, I'll talk to you soon. He's the best. Dave Starman uh, of ESPN and uh, CBS Sports Network uh, always does a terrific job, not just when he's on the show, uh, although that's the case too, but uh, when I watch those games out of the States and I'm able to watch the games where Dave's part of the broadcast team, usually in between periods, uh, because this time of year at the Frozen Four, uh, he does such a great job. Really is able to take... um, complicated scenarios on the ice, things he's looking for, and he's able to describe it and break it down in a way that uh, is easily digestible for people who maybe aren't wired that way uh, to watch hockey that way. Like me, I'm I'm actually not an X and O's guy, uh, but when uh, a guy like Dave explains things and breaks things down, makes it a lot more interesting, for sure. That's going to wrap up this week's episode of the show. Before I go, though, a couple things I wanted to mention. Remind you that uh, if you have broken hockey sticks uh, laying around your house and you happen to be in the Edmonton area, or if you're out on the East Coast, uh, get them to the store next door. And uh, if you're in the Edmonton area, the way to do that 
is to take them to United Sport and Cycle, just south of uh, White Ave. They have a uh, collection bin. They're going to take all the sticks. They're going to ship them out to the store next door. If you're on the East Coast, there are a few more drop spots. Uh, go to the thestorenextdoor.ca, and uh, they'll have everything that you need to know about where to take the sticks if you're out there. Also, you can see the catalog. All the What do they do with the sticks? All the things that they make, great stuff for your uh, recreation cave. So, you know, uh, benches and chairs and tables and picture frames. And uh, they just there's so many options, really cool items there uh, for sure. Um, something for any kind of a sports fan, that's for sure. And they even take ideas. So if you have some sort of, you know, concept in your head, you can uh, explain it to them. And they might uh, be able to execute that for you and build it for you. And uh, bottom line is this is a company that uh, uh, works with and, and hires, supports people with disabilities. Uh, all the employees there have disabilities. It's people, uh, it can be challenging for people with disabilities to find employment and uh, the store next door, helping out their community by doing that. It's uh, fantastic. Uh, I was interested in supporting it. Hopefully, by uh, talking about them on the show the last several months and, and uh, uh, getting the word out there, I've spoken with the Edmonton Oil Kings. They're going to be uh, taking a bunch of sticks to United Cycle and uh, shipping them off as well. So a really worthy cause, and uh, kudos to the, all the folks there uh, behind the scenes at the store next door. Lastly, a quick apology for uh, patrons who uh, sign up and support the show through patreon.com slash show. You usually get early access to all the shows. This week's, this last episode here, this week, just came together so quickly that uh, didn't really actually have time to uh, put up the early access stuff at the Patreon page. Uh, so that is abnormal. If you've been a patron for a while, you know that uh, that's normally the case that uh, you'll have heard all of these interviews for two or three days. But um, with uh, the Frozen Four timing and uh, the way the CHL playoffs, it, things change so quickly this time of year that uh, these interviews kind of came together all at the same time. So there was not time to get the early access up. So I apologize for that, but I do sincerely appreciate everybody who has signed up to help support the show at patreon.com slash the pipeline show next week on the show we'll continue on we'll maybe put a cap on the ncaa season we'll look ahead to the playoffs in the ushl and right around the corner we'll get you up caught up to speed on the chl playoffs maybe we'll know the third round of matchups across all three leagues and uh, we'll go from there it's playoff season everybody and uh, the world do 18s not that far away either so we might get back to the 2019 draft spotlight We'll tackle all of that next week. So between now and then, get out and watch some junior college hockey so that you and I can talk about it next week on the Pipeline Show. Till then, my name is Keith Flaming. See ya.